I am a school teacher. For those of you guys who don't, don't know me super well, I teach literature at a private school to 12th graders. And um, as I was reflecting on Advent and on our message today, I was, I was actually thinking about something that has perplexed me over the years as I've tried to teach poetry to my students, just how difficult it can be to explain or define what a poem is. Uh, because, uh, you know, most of us, when we think of poems, we, we think of uh, we, we think of something that rhymes or has a rhyme scheme. But as any of you guys may know, if you have been into poetry reading for a while, many poems don't rhyme. In fact, most poems don't rhyme. In fact, it is kind of an accepted view in today's day and age that if a poem rhymes, it's probably not very good. So one, it's not a rhyming thing. And, and so two, the second thing would be rhythm. It's got to have a rhythm to it, right? Like, um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know, that kind of, it's like da 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 And that used to be actually a pretty prevalent feature of poetry. But once you got into the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, poets started kind of casting that to the wind, uh, started to think that poems probably shouldn't have rhythm, and uh, started to create things that looked an awful lot like prose, just like regular writing, if you will. And so as I reflected and thought about this, I wondered what makes a poem a poem and or like what is the one thing that all poems have, like what feature? And it strikes me that they all use symbolic language. They all use metaphors. In other words, when you read a poem, you can't ever just read it literally. You can't just word for word kind of go through it. You have to look for the, the hidden meaning, for the symbol, because in a poem, everything is a symbol. And as I've thought and reflected on that, I thought that was a really kind of good segue into this notion of Advent. Um, many of you might even be wondering why we're talking about event, Advent. You may not know what it is. I mean, really, at the end of the day, Advent is a symbol. It's a symbol, um, like many symbols in the created order. And, and, and I say all this because, guys, as, I, as you think about and meditate on and reflect on the world around you, I want you to think about how many things in the world God has put, which are both themselves, they're both literal, but they also are hearkening to or pointing to something different, something else. And so I'll just point you to a few things. Think about Jesus' teaching, for instance, right? Think about just some of the core teaching of Scripture. God is expressed to us or taught to us as a father. And I do want you to understand, of course, that he is a father in a real sense, but he's not a literal father. Not the way we think of fatherhood, at least in the world that we live in, right? He's not a biological father. There's a certain very clear definition of what makes a man a father in our world. And with the kind of biological meaning, there, there also comes all sorts of social and emotional and kind of cultural things that are tied into it and relational, obviously, being a big thing. And when Jesus tells us that God is our father, he's tapping into those realities. And he's saying, you want to understand fatherhood? You don't just look at the real, which is, or I should say the literal, which is real. But there's a symbol in fatherhood that is expressed. And in that symbol, we can come to understand who God himself is. And Jesus uses all sorts of symbols like this. Thinking of fatherhood, we can think of motherhood. One point, Jesus, while teaching, while warning Israel of impending destruction, he says, oh, Israel, Israel, how often I would have come and gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. And so what we see here, we see a hen, literally, hen with her chicks, motherhood. It's a literal thing, but it's a symbol. It's a symbol which points to some kind of a deep 
spiritual reality. And really, if you look through the scriptures, guys, there are so many symbols present for us. If you've read any bit of the Old Testament at all, you know that sacrifice was a huge prevailing part of the culture of ancient Israel. That when I say sacrifice, I mean literal sacrifice. Taking cattle, taking goats, uh, killing them, slaughtering them, and then pouring out their blood on an altar, burning the fat on the altar, sometimes burning the whole animal. All of which ends up being a real thing, a literal thing that people used to do, but a symbol as well. Something which points us, of course, to the reality of sacrifice that we make in our lives, giving up things that we need or things that we want for the sake of someone else or giving things up for the sake of the Lord. But more importantly, there's symbols, of course, which point us to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus's own death on a cross, which itself is a symbol. It's real, it happened, but also there's depths of meaning that he wants us to mine from it. Right When he teaches us and tells us, if anyone would follow me, take up his cross, he must take up his cross and follow after me. When we become Christians, we must, in a sense, die like he did, but we also resurrect like he did. That if you want to be great in his kingdom, you must be least. You must die to self, so to speak. Symbol, 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 symbol. And you don't just need to look to Jesus' teachings or the scriptures to find symbols in the world around you. Right, Symbols are everywhere. I, I, when I was reflecting kind of in preparation for this message, I couldn't help but think of two things in particular that I find highly symbolic of what it means to be an American. McDonald's and Coca-Cola, right? I mean, if you think about it, McDonald's, fast food. We are a nation, we're a fast food nation, right? We, we're in a hurry all the time. There's so much going on and we can't seem to find a way to slow things down and to take care of or concern ourselves with the more important things. When was the last time you, or I mean, I guess I, I'm speaking for myself, sat down at a table with family? Well, I guess Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> That's a bad example. But you know what I mean. People struggle to sit down at a meal because everything is about convenience. Everything is about speed. I've got somewhere I've got to go. I've got something I've got to do. And what I need to do is I need to find something cheap, something quick, something that will get me through the day. But of course, it's something that although it will meet those needs, it will also be shallow in a sense and it will not be full of nutrition and it will divorce food from a component that was so key to human life, which is fellowship, right? And I think of Coca-Cola, the classic American drink. It is full of almost nothing your body needs. Uh, it doesn't even, here's the crazy thing about Coca-Cola, it doesn't even quench thirst. Every time I've ever thought I could use a soda right now, I finish going, I am more thirsty than I was before I drank it. Um, it's empty calories and it is sugar and basically nothing else. But really when you think about it in terms of kind of America and it's and the, like being American in today's culture and, and just kind of that, that, I guess, shallowness, almost like emptiness, so to speak, in terms of what we take into our lives, it's such a good symbol, such a good representation. Marriage, mar uh, weddings, I should say, weddings. Uh, I do lots of weddings every year. And I, every time I do a wedding, I can't help but always make a point to address the symbol in a wedding. Because in a wedding, you have a real thing. Husband and wife, man and woman are being brought together to form a relationship. It's real, it's literal. But in addition to the literal thing, 
We, of course, see the metaphor, the symbol that God would communicate to us. And that is that there is a groom in the world, God himself, and he's pursuing a bride. He's pursuing a bride and the day is coming when he will be once or he will be married to his bride. And when the bride goes to be with Christ at that moment, then she will be with him evermore. Right? That's why Jesus refers to the final judgment and to the end of time and to the resurrection of the dead as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? And so metaphor, 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 symbol, symbol, symbol. And it just all shows me that God, the creator, is a poet. Right? And so what is Advent? Advent is one of these symbols. And what does it represent? Well, it's actually tied like so many things throughout human history. It's tied to, to, to symbols that would have been a lot more evident to people. I think in other times and in other cultures would have been a lot more evident because of the way that throughout most of human history, people lived primarily agrarian lifestyles, right? I mean, people were farmers for the most part, the vast majority. And they, as farmers, were in touch or in tune to the cycles of the seasons, to the rhythms of what were going on in the world. Um, and these things we've been kind of divorced from a little bit, thanks to modern technology and things of that nature. Um, you know, and, and, and in these cycles, they were almost all connected to when is food coming and how re- reliable will my food source be for me, okay? And, and it's interesting because if you think in these terms, it's an interesting thing to note that if you look back in human history, almost every single religious festival of, of any religion, by the way, ancient Israel, as well as ancient pagan religions, they all tended to to celebrate festivals and holidays and religious events coinciding with certain key moments in kind of the cycle of the earth and how everything kind of went about. I'll just give you an example, right? One of the most holy times in all, in every culture will always be the spring, the beginning of the spring. And why is that time so holy for people? Because after a long period of time in which nothing was growing, flowers are starting to bloom. Crops are starting to grow for the very first time. Things are coming up from the ground and new life seems to be kind of seeping its way into the world around you. And there's hopefulness and celebration because, hey, we've got new food again. And so you gather the first crop, the very first fruit. You gather it into your storehouse and you, you, you have a feast. You have a celebration. We got more food and you have everybody over. And you, of course, offer prayers to God in thanks or in the pagan societies. You would offer sacrifices to the false gods and pour out wine in celebration. And then you just have fun with your friends and you'd eat sacrifices together and all of that kind of stuff. That's what would happen in the spring. And then, of course, as time moves on, more crops are growing. You're bringing in the harvest. You go through spring. You go through summer. It's a hopeful time. It's a busy time. You're working really hard. But then what happens come late September, early October? Things start to change, right? The leaves start to fall and things start slowing down and and the crops that at one point were growing so steadily, so readily, are starting to not grow. And so what you do there during that season is a time for that was really probably the most holy time in almost any culture. It was true for the Jews who had three of their most important holidays during that particular season. 
you would gather in the final harvest. And this was a big one, right? The final harvest, you want to have it be full. You want to have it be plentiful. And you, if it's full and plentiful, then you can have a good celebration with family and friends. But you want it that way because the time is coming for a nice solid four months in which nothing is going to be growing. And this is, I hope here, guys, you can see why things are so different for us. Because we don't live in that world. We don't think about what's growing and when it's growing. You can get any fruit in any season, for the most part. It might not be as good, but you can pretty much find anything in any season. If there is a drought going on, don't fear. We exist on a global economy. You can get it from somewhere else where there isn't a drought going on. But most people were lived most of their lives throughout all of human history just a, a, a hair's length away from starvation. And so there was this constant awareness that, oh my goodness, if I don't get a good enough crop, I'm gonna, I might die. My family might die. And there was fear in that. And then as they kind of start to go through that season, go through that period where things aren't to grow or are, uh, are slowing down in terms of their growth, they notice something about kind of the weather around them. It gets colder, obviously, and the days get shorter. And of course, that starts in the summer solstice over in June. Slowly, bit by bit, the days start getting shorter and shorter and shorter. But then they get to a point where the days are quite short. And of course, people coped with this in really simple ways. They mostly slept, right? Back in the day when you didn't have electricity, when it got dark out at 5 p.m., you're just like, okay, well, I'm just going to go to bed. Uh, because there really isn't anything else to do. I'm bored. That's just what we're going to do. But there was this ominous sense that people felt as the days got shorter and shorter and shorter. There was this feeling like the darkness was going to win, like the darkness was going to snuff out the light. Until the winter solstice, December 21st, they noticed at that time, everything shifts, everything changes. And all of a sudden, whereas the days were getting shorter and shorter and shorter, they start to get longer and longer and longer. And so, of course, these ancient civilizations all celebrated big holidays on the winter solstice. And that holiday almost always had to do with the theme of light. Almost always light. If you think about it, the Jews celebrate uh, Hanukkah, right? If you guys are familiar with Hanukkah, it's the celebration of the festival of lights, the dedication, the rededication of the temple. The story that kind of motivates it was that the menorah, the, the, the lamps that were supposed to stay lit within the holy place in the temple of God, those lamps were supposed to have their oil changed every single day. Um, but it had to be changed with oil that had been properly consecrated to God. And it took seven days to consecrate the oil, and they were out. And so wanting to be faithful to the law of God, they went through the process of consecrating the oil and prayed to God that the lamps that, had, that were lit currently would not go out. And according to the story, for seven days, those lamps stay lit and the light was not snuffed out. And so what does, this, what does the winter solstice as a symbol teach us? And what does the holiday that coincides with the winter solstice teach us? It teaches us this simple thing. It's the same thing that the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5, teaches us. That the light shined forth in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Advent is a season of longing. It's a season of suffering. It's a season of anticipation and waiting. You're waiting, and it's supposed to, it's, it's, it's supposed to teach us and instruct us on this fact of life. That life is hard. 
And we go through difficult times. And sometimes in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that hardship, it feels like whatever light is in our life is going to be blotted out. And that runs us very dangerously close with the feeling of despair. And what is Christmas supposed to teach us? It's supposed to teach us that we ought not despair because the light is never vanquished, it is never overcome, and we have a reason to hope. That's Advent. That's the symbol. And God put it in our story, in the world as it unfolded, to teach us about himself and to reveal himself to a lost and dying world. And now a little bit of a background on, on this sermon. Uh, I, it, is, it has been exactly a year since the last time I preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning. December 4th, 2020 is the last time I taught. Uh, and just so you guys know, I don't know how many of you guys were here, but I'm going to teach the exact same sermon this morning that I taught a year ago. The exact one with a couple of minor changes. One change was a year ago we were supposed to be teaching from the book of Psalms. So I tacked on a psalm at the beginning last year and I'm not tacking that on this year. And this year we're supposed to be teaching on the topic of love and I didn't teach on that last time so I'm kind of tacking that on. I know that sounds bad but I think you'll see that it, it, it's suitable. It fits. But there is a reason. There's a, a reason behind my or I should say a method to my, my madness. That's probably a bad mixing of words. There's a reason behind what I'm doing, and the reason is this. Uh, I went back and watched my uh, message from a year ago online, and uh, there was a moment in that when I was kind of going through the same bit I just gave you, and I was talking about how difficult times have been for us the last couple of years, right? I mean, it's been a hard time. It's been a very Advent season, uh, for lack of a better phrase. It's been a season of Advent for us. It's a time where people are waiting in anticipation for things to get better. It's a time in which people hopefully are hoping for a kind of you know, good future, so to speak. And of course, you guys know all the things that kind of lend to the general darkness and despair, whether it be COVID or all, many of the things that might even be surrounding COVID, things like loss of job, loss of livelihood. Maybe it's people spending too much time kind of, kind of cooped up in their house, lacking human contact. Maybe there's mental health issues that have kind of arisen from that. I know that there are a lot of marriages that have been really... Uh, really put under heavy strain, partly because of the circumstances, whether it be being locked away in your home or whether it be just simple loss of, of job and things of that particular nature. Times are hard. And then people have lost loved ones, right? And so I talked about all this last year. I said, this is a very appropriate year to be talking about Advent. And I remember as I was, as I was teaching, I was struck. I was struck by the fact that I didn't... I don't know. There was a little bit that seemed a little, fake's the wrong word. Let me just say this. As I was teaching, it didn't seem like I had the right to teach that particular subject because through the COVID season up until that point, I was doing really well. Like my life was really good. Everything had kind of worked out for me. So it felt kind of like empty words for me to talk about people's suffering. And I brought that up. I actually said it in the sermon. I said, guys, my life has actually been really good. And just in general, my life has been good. I have suffered the loss of a lot of people I've known, people I've really cared about, but a lot of that is because I know so many people. 
But I, I had not at any point lost any close family member in my life. Life was like, I don't know, I just felt exceedingly and extremely blessed. And it was a very kind of almost ironic moment because as I'm making that disclaimer, as I'm telling everybody how good my life is, I made this comment. I said, I mean, COVID seems to be fine for me and my family. I said, I had it and I'm fine. I said, my dad has it, he seems fine. And I didn't know at that moment that four days later, my dad would be in the hospital. Um, and, I, and this was something that was really... Uh, it really struck me because I love Christmas so much. And I love what Christmas as a symbol represents so much, being that light in the world. Like Christmas for me, it just resonates with hope, right? It resonates with this idea of light. I mean, I'm a teacher, right? So it's like everything in my life reinforces these things from when I was a kid, basically. Because the school year ends, well not the school year, but the school semester ends, and I get two weeks of a break. I get two weeks where I don't have to work. It's like, and everything leading up to that moment feels very adventy, right? Because I am tired of being at school. All of my students are tired of being at school. I have a ton of grading to do, all these tasks to be done before Christmas, so I'm super stressed out, and I'm just so looking forward to that moment when Christmas comes. And, and it's not just the fact that I don't have to work. It, it's not just the fact that it's one of the few times in my life where it gets, things can slow down and I can be with the people I love the most and where I can have fun and relax. But it's also all the nostalgia that fills my life, right? All the, all the memories of being a kid, waking up in the morning at 5 a.m. and going and knocking on your parents' bedroom door and saying, hey, it's time for Christmas, and them telling you, go back to bed. Uh, and then you go and you sit and you wait in anticipation for that moment when they're going to finally come and the time that you spend at your grandma's and, and, and you see all the cousins and it's just so fun in the Christmas Carol movie and, and it's a wonderful life and it's all dripping with nostalgia and you love it. Like it almost feels like you're becoming a kid again, right? That's the way I've always felt. And I was mindful as I was teaching that not everybody feels that way because this, the holidays are also a time in which there is great sense of loss for so many people because of course sometimes it's because they lost somebody at the holidays sometimes it's just the realization that they're not going to have that person who had been with them for so long for that season and it felt like I just couldn't relate and then all of a sudden there I am it's Christmas last year and at Christmas I end up going uh, having to go home to see my dad and I again was pretty blessed because unlike pretty much anybody else I've ever heard of. They let me into the hospital, they let me into my dad's room, and they let me sit there with my dad every single day, all day, for about six weeks. I sat right next to him, I held his hand, I was able to talk to him, thank God, for about nine days before he ended up being put on a ventilator, and then he would die while in the hospital from COVID. And, and it was, it, that was my Christmas, because it was six weeks. So that was my Christmas last year, and it was so, such a weird feeling because all of the hope and all of the joy and all of the light and all of the happiness that I'm used to feeling was gone. It wasn't there. On Christmas Day, for the first time in my life, we just didn't celebrate Christmas. There wasn't even a thought. We didn't even talk about it. I didn't ask my stepmom, hey, should we try to do something? I did what I'd been doing every day. I got up, I went and visited my dad, and I came home at night, and I sat there with my stepmom and my sister, and my stepmom went to bed super early because she was devastated and despondent. And then my sister and I, we drove around a little bit because 
there was nothing you could do on a given kind of with your time because we were in Oregon and everything was locked down. It was not Christmas. You know what I mean? It, and, and so I share that. I admit it's a little self-indulgent. I apologize for that. I, I share that, though, not because it necessarily adds anything particularly to the message. I share it because as I was trying to, as I was there, I remember distinctly having the sense, and you could ask Tucker about it, on our way back from my dad's funeral in Oregon, I told him, I said, I think I need to go and preach on a Sunday morning again, and I need to teach the exact same chapter, I told him. And I told him that because I needed to see if I believed it still. I, okay, let me, I did believe it still, but I needed the different, you know what I mean? Like it's a different thing. And so that's, kind of my setup for why I'm teaching the exact same passage today. And I think I'm teaching a very appropriate Advent passage, a passage that is very much about the darkness, and it's very much about the hope that comes at the end of that darkness. So John chapter 11, verse 1, let's get into it. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Um, you guys no doubt remember that story. It's one of the well-known uh, stories of the Lord. A woman came into uh, a dinner party that was being thrown that Jesus was at, and she comes with uh, oil and perfume, and she, she pours it on the Lord, and then she gets down on her hands and knees, and she washes his feet with her tears and with her hair. Um, and I think it's interesting because Jesus would say that what that woman had done for him will essentially echo throughout eternity. People will always know her, know who she is, and remember the work that she did in his name. And so here we have a story about her. And it, it lets us know who she is by saying, this was that woman who did that, that Mary. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 3. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, they sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So the two sisters, their brother is sick. And what they want to happen here is they want Jesus to come and heal him. And I want you to understand kind of contextually, who was Jesus in this culture? Why was he well known? Why was he famous? It was because he was a great healer. That's what he was known for. He developed a following because people heard that he healed. So they would bring their loved ones. And people saw amazing healings. They saw crippled people walking. They saw blind seeing. They saw deaf hearing. They saw the Lord working miracles that should have been impossible. And here, these two women, whom the Lord loves, and their brother, whom he loves, they, they write to him because he's sick. And they're saying, Lord, please come and heal him. And I love that they throw in there, the one you love. It's almost like an argument, if you will. It's like, hey, don't forget Jesus. Like most of the people he'd been going around healing were nobodies. I mean, not nobodies, but they were people he didn't know. He, he, they weren't friends. They weren't family. They weren't loved ones. They were just people who were brought to him. And they're saying, but this one you love. And the, the implication, guys, is if you love him, then you need to come and heal him. That's the implication. And the Lord's response, guys, is astonishing. And it's one that I think is very um, useful for understanding our own pains, sufferings, and losses. Look at this, verse 4. <clears throat> when Jesus heard that, 
He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's such an interesting response. This sickness is not unto death. It's interesting, guys, because I want you to think about it. This sickness was unto death, right? Understand what his disciples are thinking as they sit there with him. They get a message. Lazarus is sick. The disciples are like, oh, that's your friend. We should probably go so you can heal him. And then Jesus says, don't worry. The sickness is not unto death. And then they go, okay, he's not going to die. He'll be fine, right? But that's not true. He's going to die. And I want to stop here because I want to make sure you understand. It's not that Jesus is lying. This is a perspective difference or a difference in perspective. Understand that Jesus, and he's amazing this way, he uses every opportunity to teach something that would not occur to most people, right? I think about the woman at the well. Do you remember when he's there and a woman comes to him and uh, he asks her to give her something to drink? Uh, and, and then he tells her, if you knew who it was who was speaking with you, you would ask of him, and he would give you living waters, and you'd never thirst. He uses literally every single moment to teach something that is so contrary to expectation and so different from experienced reality. And so he's, Lazarus is going to die. But, of course, Jesus doesn't see it that way. He has a different perspective because he knows the end of this story. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That is a key verse right here. It's really key, guys, because what we're about to see unfold in this story is something that doesn't seem like love. The way Jesus responds is not the way you would expect somebody who loves somebody else to react. And so John pauses here and says, you guys got to understand, Jesus did love them. He did love them. And this is important because this shows us that, that when you love somebody, it's not necessarily always easy to tell what the right and loving thing to do for somebody is. It also shows us that when we feel unloved by, by maybe the Lord or somebody else, that maybe it wasn't an unloving thing that that person had done. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, now look at this. This is a weird section. It says Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then it says, so, almost like a consequent of that, like because he loved them. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Do you guys see that? If you love somebody and they're sick and you can heal them, presumably the loving thing is to go and heal them, right? And this says Jesus loved them, so he stayed. And what's going to be the result? Lazarus is going to die. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going to go there again? So understand again the context. He has his disciples. They heard that Lazarus is sick. He told them that Lazarus is going to get better. It's not unto death. So they don't need to go in their minds. And then finally, after a couple of days, Jesus says, actually, guys, um, let's go to Judea. And they're like, uh, Jesus, we probably shouldn't go to Judea because there are people there that are looking to kill you. And so just to be safe, we probably ought to stay here. No doubt they were, to a certain degree, 
kind of engaging in a little bit of an act of self-preservation because they themselves didn't want to risk getting caught, getting in trouble. Skip the next couple of verses. Um, look at verse 11. He says, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. So he says, no, 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 we actually need to go because Lazarus is sleeping. Now, guys, remember, they think the sickness was on into death. What Jesus just said to them doesn't make any sense. So look at his response, or look at their response, verse 12. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Do you guys see what's happening here? Jesus is like, we need to go to Judea. They go, no, we're going to get arrested and killed probably. And Jesus goes, no, we need to because Lazarus sleeps, and I have to go wake him. And they're like, uh... If he's sick, he needs to sleep. Let him keep sleeping, and then he'll get better. They don't get what Jesus is saying. Verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Again, guys, we see here this thing that Jesus is doing. When he says, when he says that this sickness is not unto death, and our friend Lazarus is sleeping, he is not telling a falsehood. He's telling the truth, but he's not speaking in, in words that are commensurate with how humans normally talk. Like, like, we don't speak about death as sleep. That's not natural to us. To us, death has a finality to it. But with this, Jesus is going to set a pattern for the church to follow for many generations after. You see it in the apostles. They spoke of brothers and sisters dying as falling asleep in the Lord. And here's why. Because they learned and understood that we have a different perspective of reality as believers. Why is it that Lazarus is sleeping? It's because he will wake again. And as believers, we know when a believer dies, he doesn't die or she doesn't die. They fall asleep in the Lord because someday we will see them again. They will resurrect. It is transitory. It is a fleeting thing, this death. Verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Guys, that's an astonishing passage. He goes through that whole business of saying, Lazarus sleeps and we need to wake him and, and they don't understand. And then he says, okay, I'm going to tell you straight up. Lazarus is dead. And look at his response. I am glad. And I want you to think about that verse that we read a little bit ago. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. To us, to our eyes, to our ears, to all of our human sensibilities, you cannot be glad that somebody you love died in this context. That is not the loving response. That's not what somebody who loves does. And yet Jesus says, I am glad. Why? Because on account of this, you're going to see the glory of God. On account of this, you're going to see the glory of God. Carrying on, verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, Thomas. I think of him as like the pessimistic one amongst the 12, right? Uh, fine, Jesus, let's go uh, so that we also can die. You guys remember Thomas. He's the one who when everybody was excited running around telling him and everybody else that Jesus had resurrected, he's like, nope, not going to believe it. Not going to believe it until I see it. Well, here he is saying, if Lazarus is already dead, there's no point in us going there. And I guess I'm just going to cynically say, well, I guess we just might as well be arrested and killed too. But they go on their way. 
verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. I think that's an important thing just to make a note of. Even when he showed up, it wasn't right after death. He wanted to give time so that it could be established very clearly that Lazarus was dead. So that nobody could say, oh, well, maybe he was just passed out. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe there's some kind of an explanation for why he came back to himself. No, he is dead. He is dead. He is buried. And there is no coming back from this. Carrying on. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem. Bethany remembers where those sisters and brother lived. Was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So Martha and Mary are there. And of course, um, there are mourners who have come to mourn alongside of them and to offer comfort. And I do just want to offer an aside here, just reflecting back again as I brought up my dad's passing. As that was like... I've, like I said, I've been to a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals in my life, and I've mourned in many of them. In most of those funerals where I mourn, though, I am there as a comforter to the closer family members, right? I'm, I'm there to comfort the wife or the children or the, and that's what many of us are there to do, even in the midst of our own grief at loss. And watching my dad's was the first time where I was the one to be comforted. And I'm telling you, kind of tying this back into the very beginning of our study today, talking about us as a fast food nation and the way that we do funerals. My dad was from Mexico, so we, we had a Mexican funeral. And it's a very different kind of thing, right? And my experience is typically funerals are short. We, we kind of like them short. We get through it very quickly. We have a meal. We say our words, and then we go our separate way. And also, we, we kind of we like to be through it fast to be done with it quickly. Not so in Mexico. In Mexico, it's a long thing. It's a big thing. And you have, uh, like we had a wake where the co- we were around the coffin and the coffin was open and, and all these people are inside the room sitting there and they're just coming up. People I don't know and they're hugging me and they're touching me and they're kissing me and all of these different kinds of things to tell me that they love me. And, and I'm telling you, it worked like it was comforting. It was unbelievable how much it assuaged the pain of my soul. My good friends showed up. Uh, Tucker flew out to see me uh, and come to the funeral with me. And then my friend Daniel Harder drove out. And uh, I knew that they were coming. And I, I hung out with them the night before. And then was utterly blown away when coming out of the, out of the service, I saw Reggie and my friend Marcus who had drove up and showed up right at that day. And just having them there. having And then they came in and they sat with everybody else. 200 people in this tight packed room in a room that was meant for 60 and in which the funeral home told us that we could have no more than 25 because of COVID. You had 200 people all packed in this room just just being there, just being there and loving on us. And and I want to say that, guys, just as an aside, like a bit of advice. When somebody you know is going through a time of loss and mourning, do that. Do it, I'm telling you. I know that in our minds, we get this thing which tells us, oh, they don't want to be bothered, they don't want to be talked to. And there's probably a degree of that, but they'll let you know when they don't want to. Like, they will value your presence and your being there. And historically, guys, that's what you did when people in a community mourned and lost. Everybody came by, everybody was there, and everybody joined in with you. And it was not, you didn't speed through it, and it wasn't superficial, it was very real. And so... What's going on here? Uh, That's what's going on here. Now, verse 20. Look at verse 20. Now, Martha 
As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary stayed in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that could sound accusatory. And maybe there is a a bit of that. You guys know what I mean when I say accusatory. If you had been here, my brother would have died. Like, why weren't you here? But I I don't see that here. And I, I could be wrong. This is my interpretive point. But look at the second verse out, or 22nd verse. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What is she saying? She's saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that you can ask God whatever you want, and he will give it to you. And what is she asking? She's asking him to raise her brother from the dead. See, I've been asked to pray for many people who are dying. Nobody has ever come up to me and said, would you please pray for my departed loved one that he would raise from the dead? Never. That's what she's asking. Think about how much faith is present in this woman. Lord, even now I know. Jesus did resurrect some people from the dead, but that was not a thing he was going around and doing often. There were many who were unaware of this miracle, of his ability to do that, I think. She's trusting him fully. And look at Jesus' response. It's, it's so awesome because this is the kind of response that almost anybody gives to a, a suffering Christian. Uh, they, they always say this. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. It's, the word of comfort is don't worry. You're going to see him again. He's going to resurrect. This is not the last time you will see him. And that is true. But I love Martha's response to this. Martha's response is, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And I think that's, guys, what I love here is Jesus is, in that sense, kind of walking through what most people say. It's the natural response. And Martha is expressing what any person who hears that feels, which is, thanks, I know I will. But right now, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't want to wait to see him at the last day. I want him right now. Like, I'm not comforted by the reality that I'll see him again someday. Maybe a little bit. But what I want is him here right now. That's what she wants. And here, the pivotal verse of this whole section. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The pivotal passage is this. I am the resurrection, Martha. I am. It's not the event. It's not the fact. It's not what's going to ultimately someday happen at the end of time. It's not even the hope of that happening, which it will. He's saying, I am the resurrection. And so in this moment of all moments, guys, he taps into the answer, to the advent answer for the darkness. He taps into the answer for the question that everybody who is suffering in these ways has to wrestle with. And that is, how can I possibly experience joy and love and peace when everything around me is falling apart? And the answer is, not that someday I'll see them resurrect again, although that's true. But it's that Jesus is the resurrection today. He's the resurrection right now. When I read this, guys, I think of John 6, 68. It's a beautiful passage thinking about those symbols that we were talking about earlier. Jesus is teaching the multitude, and he says, If you come to me and do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And everybody's like, eat your flesh and drink your blood? What are you talking about? 
And what I love is he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't tell them at all. They just are left to figure it out. And what it says is, from that day forward, many walked away, never to follow him again. Many walked away from him. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, will you also leave me? And Peter says, Lord, where will we go? You have the words of life. And guys, that's the answer. That's the secret to all of it. That's the secret to how you walk in a world that has so much darkness and in which that darkness seems to be crushing out all the light. The answer is that the light is there and the darkness is not going to overcome it. And you keep walking in that light. I am the resurrection and the truth, Martha. I am the resurrection and the truth. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Even if you die, literally, like if you, you, the, you stop breathing and your heart goes dead, you are not dead. When he said Lazarus sleeps, he was actually speaking something that was more than true. Because in Christ, you never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is to come into the world. Martha, in this story, is my optimist. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want you guys to think that I'm trying to say Martha is the right way or Martha follows the exact right way. I think she represents one kind of response to Jesus and one kind of response to suffering. The second, maybe there's more than two, but a second is found in Mary, our pessimist. Or I don't like calling Mary a pessimist. I don't think she actually is, but it's... It's a helpful distinction in this moment. Look at verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and she secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and she came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And when the Jews who were with her, that is with Mary, in the house comforting her, when they saw Mary rise up quickly and go out, they followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here, I sense that bit of accusatory language. Here, I don't get the sense that she's saying, but now you can do whatever you want, so I know you can resurrect them. I think she's saying, Lord, why weren't you here? I asked for you, and you could have come. And if you would have come, he wouldn't have died. And now he's dead because you didn't come. And I, I want to share this, guys, because the Lord doesn't rebuke Mary for this. This is a normal feeling, I think, that you would have. I felt it many times in the midst of that time with my dad. I felt it many times. And I'm not saying that you should nurture that necessarily or like and I'm just saying it is human nature it is what you're going to feel if somebody like you believe the Lord loves you like she believed the Lord loved her then you're going to stop and wonder Lord if you love me so much why would you let me suffer like this why would you let me suffer this pain and like the passage in John 6 Jesus here doesn't explain he doesn't tell her why and I don't know why I hope you're not hanging out waiting for me to tell you why because I don't know why there are some things that are meant to be mysteries for God what do I know I know Jesus loves her because it said 
It said he loves her. He loves her, and it's what we see. Look what's going to follow. Verse, um, uh, verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit. What did he do? He started to mourn himself. He didn't stop and teach her. He taught Martha. He didn't stop and teach her. He didn't stop and tell her the right things to think or the right things to believe. He didn't try to encourage her with his words about the fact of his resurrection power or about the hope of the future. He just grieved. And keep going. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then he wept. Jesus wept. A lot of people have raised the question, why did Jesus weep at this moment? If he knows Lazarus is going to be resurrected in like two minutes, he's going to see him in two minutes. Why? I mean, I would be like, oh, dude, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> I'd be sitting there going, oh, yeah, sorry, guys. You know, I mean, that'd be human nature to think I've got this really cool thing that I'm going to show everybody. But he doesn't. Why? Guys, he's, at the end of the day, God, to God all time, as Peter tells us, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Two, what's two minutes or a thousand years to the Lord? right? If we weep at all, if the Lord suffers in his spirit at all at loss and death, he can just as easily do it over two minutes as 2,000 years. It's the same. Whatever pain and heartache and loss is in it, it's there. And Jesus here is suffering with her, which is the right response for him to suffer right there with her. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. Look at how they're, they're marveled. Jesus really loved this guy. And some of them said, to, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now here's that, couldn't, they, couldn't he have healed him? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, he came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. I love this, look at this. Martha, right, the one who came and said, even now, you can do anything? Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Martha goes from, you can do anything to, wait, what? You're going to roll this stone away? And again, I love it because, guys, she doesn't have perfect faith. Nobody has perfect faith, right? We have moments where we, like those crystal moments of clarity where we trust him so much. And yet also those are peppered with all sorts of doubts and, and, and also considerations about how we would do it if it was done our way. It's been four days, Lord. This seems wrong. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And so in the story, guys, we see an Advent season, a whole lot of Advent. And we see it culminate in a Christmas, right? We see it culminate in the light overcoming. We see it culminate in a resurrection. We see it culminate in a light. We start off with fear, with dreadful anticipation of something bad coming. We go into mourning, deep mourning. And what do we end with? A joy that could be 
inexpressible, a joy that we can't even fathom and imagine. And that's what we're doing at Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. And that's what we're trying to remember this Advent. And the main takeaway I want you guys to, to have as we, as we prepare to, to leave this place, I want you guys to think about that verse. That Jesus loved, he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Because so much of what he did seemed like it wasn't loving. So much of what he did seemed like the thing that you would never do if you actually cared about somebody. And the only way we could understand it is to see the whole picture, to see the beginning and the end. And from that, guys, I want you to remember that this is the love that God has for us. It's the love that we celebrate on this Christmas. First John chapter 4, verse 19, John says that we love God because he first loved us. And then he gives this injunction that if God loves us, then, then, and we, uh, then we in turn are to love others. And that's what Christmas is about. Right? That's what we're celebrating is the love of God brought forth in the world that we want to bring to a lost and broken and dying humanity. And I want you guys to understand that's such an important takeaway from this passage. That we live in a culture that also values love. It thinks love is awesome. But they don't understand because they almost always define it as romance. And I'm not here to, to say that romance is bad. Obviously, it's a gift from God. I think it's good. But it's not the virtue that the scriptures teach. It's not. In fact, if anything, it can serve as a temptation away from the virtue of loving because romance has this tricky way of being quite selfish if we let it. What is love? What is the love of God? The love of God that he wants us to show others, it is a love, it, it is an act by which we sacrifice our desires, sacrifice our wants, for the sake of somebody else when they can do nothing in return. We do it for them and for their sake alone. That's love. That's what Christ did for us. That's what he did for, for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And not just for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but for all of his disciples. He said, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are going to be so happy when he's raised from the dead. There's going to be so much joy for them when he's raised from the dead. And the disciples are going to witness and behold the glory of God. And it is the love that he demonstrated for us when he went to that cross. And when he hanged on that cross and he, 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 his blood was shed and he was a symbol to us. He didn't just die and resurrect, which he did. And he didn't just wash us of our sins, which he did. He taught us what love was in that very act.